As we turn to Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3, we discover the nation of Israel faced one of the most threatening challenges a nation can ever experience, the loss of their founding father and the passing of the leadership responsibilities on to the second generation. How did Moses prepare his people for this change? What can we learn about handling changes in our families, in our churches, in our businesses? Here is our study leader, Dave Wurtson, to guide us in our observations about Israel's transfer of leadership to the generation of conquest. Changes are hard on us. We get excited about change, and yet we're worried about change. We desperately want to have it sometimes. Sometimes we just say anything, just give us a change. And then after we have it, we can become disillusioned and say, well, it didn't meet the needs that, that we really you know, wanted to have met. It's the nature of human existence that change is part of life, and we're frightened by it, excited by it. We think it's a good thing, we think it's a bad thing. All kinds of contrasts revolve around change. In Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 3, we're introduced to probably what's going to be one of the most dominant themes of the book of Deuteronomy. It's about change. It's about a change of leadership. Just like our nation is making a change from the World War II generation to the post-World War II generation, the children of Israel had to make a change from the Exodus generation, the wilderness generation, to the generation that's going to go in and conquer the land. They're going to have to change leadership. They're going to have to move from a man named Moses, who's probably the most powerful, the most influential. He is the Egyptian leader that brought the people out of slavery and set them free. If you want to call him, he's the George Washington of ancient Israel. But now he's old. Now he's aged. And the Lord's going to say, Moses, you're not going to take my people into the land. In Deuteronomy 2 and 3, we're going to have Moses win two powerful initial victories. He's going to win the first skirmishes in the war. And then the Lord's going to tell him, no. From the time that I've been a kid, I've wrestled with the fact that Moses was not allowed to go into the land. It didn't look to me like it was fair. It looked to me like God gave him a raw deal. And I remember as a little kid, you know, hearing preachers speak to me about God saying no. And just like all little children, I didn't like it when a daddy said no. Why? Why did God say no? There's something else that's very troubling in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 3 is that we're going to have two peoples. The kingdom of the Amorites and two powerful kings. Very strange names. Zion, Sihon, you might call him, S-I-H-O-N. And another ancient name, Og. And Og is a great big giant, at least from the size of his couch. He was over 10 feet tall or so. So he was a great giant. And these two kings are going to be defeated and all their people are going to be destroyed. That's hard. If I were teaching classes down at UT, I'm sure that's as far as we would get. We would have to spend the rest of the period just wrestling with how could we ever follow a God who would lead his people into war. It's one of the greatest stumbling blocks to understanding the Old Testament. I doubt that we can really solve it. We're going to try to make an attempt, begin to move towards it. I want to share something else. As we look at Deuteronomy 2 and 3, just very honestly, as I've been studying it, when I read Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 3, I really struggle with teaching you the material. 
For one thing, there's tons and tons of names, Rephaim and Emim and Horites and things that you've never even understood. If I was teaching a class at Dallas Theological Seminary in Semitics, in Old Testament languages, they would have to listen. They'd pay over $100 an hour to listen. And they would be paid to sit there and act like they were really interested, like they should really pay attention. In fact, some of them would be very strange. They would get really excited and they would learn all about the history of the Horites. I've been in classes like that. And we would spend two hours studying the history of the Horites. And a lot of times when I got all done, I'd raise my hand and say, so what? I want you to understand something about Deuteronomy 2 and 3, and I'm being really honest with you this morning. If I didn't believe that all Scripture was inspired of God, if I didn't believe that 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that these things happened unto them to be an example for you, then I wouldn't teach you Deuteronomy 2 and 3. I really want you to know that. There's probably only one time during your week where all of you, young and old alike, gather together as a family and you can really think deeply about the book of Deuteronomy. If you want to hear a good sales pitch, Zig Ziglar can play a cassette to you in your car and it will touch your life and motivate you to sell. But Zig is not going to teach you Deuteronomy 2 and 3. And I want you to really understand where we're coming from because Deuteronomy is a hard book and yet we are raising a generation, and maybe you're one of them, that doesn't know Deuteronomy 2 and 3. And I know that it's hard. But I also know that almost everything in life, almost everything in life, whether it's chemistry, or whether it's economics, whether it's computer science, whatever it might be, in any field that you study, there's going to come a time when it's hard, when you don't understand when you think that maybe it's just boring. And if you're going to find the truth, you all that want to become chemists, if you're going to become chemists, you're going to have to be willing to keep thinking and keep trying to understand when you don't understand anything. And amazingly enough, if you discipline yourself, you'll learn. The incredible thing about Deuteronomy 2 and 3 is that God has chosen in the midst of this obscure ancient passage to reveal a lot about himself. The very first thing that he tells us is that he is very concerned about unbelief. As we open the pages of Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 3, we're introduced to a generation who wasted their entire life. I wish I didn't have to say that, but this generation wasted an entire 40 years of their existence. They wandered around. They never went anywhere. They never went into the land of promise. All they did was live their life and God provided for their needs, gave, they gave them manna from heaven, made sure their clothes didn't wear out, but they never got anywhere. They never walked one step into the promised land. And we begin to learn about them in, in Deuteronomy 2, verse 1. It says, Then we turned back. We set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea as the Lord had directed me. For a long time, we made our way around the hill country of Mount Seir. And you get the picture, even as you read those verses, you get this picture of this people that's kind of wandering around and they're circling and they're just going through this desert wilderness. A lot of their circular routine is just to kind of do spirals around Kadesh Barnea, which is where they, they had their challenge of faith and they blew it. 
because there's water there, there's a beautiful oasis there. But now we begin to sense a change in the passage. Then the Lord said to me, verse 2, You have made your way around this hill country of Mount Seir long enough. Now turn north. I know that's hard for us as Texans, but understand he's not saying to turn north to New York or to go north to the land of the Yankees. He's saying, but for an Israelite, to turn north is strategic. Because guess what is in the north? Tell me. In the north is the what? The promised land. That's right. So for these people, you need to feel it. When the command of God came, stop wandering around. Turn north. There's power in those words. It means the period of judgment, the period of punishment has begun to end. And now the Lord is going to begin to provide victory for his people. Give the people these orders. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you and be very careful. Do not provoke them to war, for I will, I will not get this. I will not give any of their land, not even enough to pay to put your foot on. I will not give you any of their land. I have given Esau, the hill country of Mount Seir, as his own. You are to pay them in silver for the food you eat and the water you drink. The children of Israel have been spending all their time wandering around. They've been making circular paths, probably journeying down to the south and then back up. Finally, the Lord says, I want you to turn north. There's a city called Selah. On this map, in our culture, it's called Petra. And I've been in that city. Mary's been in that city. It's been inhabited from very ancient times. In fact, some of you children that want to know some about what the Bible says about cavemen, uh, one example of cavemen in the Bible is it right in our passage today. The people that settled ancient Selah lived in caves. Their names were the Horites. In fact, in Hebrew, Horite means kind of to, to dig out your, your dwelling place from the ground. So the Edomites, the, the children of Esau, came into Mount, Seir, into Mount Seir, this mountainous land. They came to Petra. They conquered the Horites and they threw them out. Because in the book of Genesis, God told, and you might remember, who was Esau? He's the son of Isaac. That's right. Remember, Isaac had Esau and Jacob. And God gave to the son of Esau, I'm the son of Isaac, this land. Now, I want you to understand something. You say, what does this have to do with our culture today? We've had a major debate about Columbus, have we not? One of the major things about Columbus is whether or not he did a good thing or whether or not he did a bad thing. Now, I'm not going to enter into all that debate, but I want you to understand that the book of Deuteronomy is telling us that this cycle of people invading people conquering, people supplanting others. The book of Deuteronomy is telling us that that cycle has been going on for ages and ages and ages. From ancient times, there's been this cycle of one people coming in and one people going out. Now, what the book of Deuteronomy is also telling us is that that cycle is not just happening haphazardly. It's not just happening by laws of chance or by laws of probability, but it's saying that there's a great king in heaven, there's a great dramatic writer of history who is ultimately controlling this ebb and flow of people. As we move into this chapter, the Lord's going to give the promised land to the children of Israel. Later on in this chapter, we're going to have two kings and all of their land totally destroyed. And you can say, well, that's just arbitrary. That's very mean for God to do that. 
I want you to understand, as we begin the chapter, that the Lord tells the children of Israel, this land right here does not belong to you. Do not attack. It's not yours. And it tells us something. The Lord of history is not just arbitrarily mowing people down. He's not just immorally and without any sense of justice, just destroying people. The children of Edom, the children of Esau, controlled this land, and the Lord tells them, this land belongs to you. And it belongs to the children of Esau. Israel, you walk along here, and you stay far away from their land. You let them give you food, but you pay for it. You let them give you drink, but you pay for it. So they go up what's called the King's Highway, up through the land of Edom, and they do not take any of that land. Earlier in their history, they had good reason to attack Edom because 40 years earlier or 38 years earlier, they tried to cross through Edom and Edom would not allow them to even step foot in their land at all. Edom was very hostile towards these wandering tribes in the wilderness. So, they, so Israel had good reason to attack Edom, but they did not. Why not? Because God said, no, that doesn't belong to you. They came north a little bit further. And they were bordering this other land called the land of Moab. Again, the Lord said no in this chapter. He said, children of Israel, that is the land of Lot. And I want to share something with you. Moab was the incestuous result of the union of Lot with his daughter. Now, you would think, well, you know, God's not going to bless that. I mean, that, you know, that's a horrible thing. Remember when we had Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed here at the south of the Dead Sea? Right in this area, very same kind of land that we're dealing with today. Sodom and Gomorrah was the ancient city there. And God said, I'm going to send my destroying angels. And terrible earthquakes totally ransacked this whole area of the world. Lot thought it was the end of the world. His daughters thought it was the end of the world. And so the United Sexually in Moab was the result. You would think that the Lord God of heaven would just zap them, but he didn't. He said, no, the land of Moab, I've given that to the children of Lot. That's their land. He didn't let the children of Israel attack them. In the Bible, the flow of history is not just arbitrary. It's not just one vicious people overwhelming another people. But there is a sense of justice from a biblical standpoint. As we move a little bit farther to the north, we're going to be introduced to another story in just a second where the Lord God is going to say, now this land, and it's this land right in between, north of Ammon, up into the area, this is the area called Gilead, and the area called Bashan. The Lord is going to give that land into the power of Israel, because that land is now controlled by the Amorites, who are one of the tribes of Canaan, that the Lord has given 400 years to repent from their wickedness. Instead of repenting, they have become more devoted to wickedness. And now the Lord has brought his judging hand, in this case, his people, and they're going to conduct holy war by a divine revelation against these two kingdoms. But I want to pick up something else before we do that. Look back at Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 3. It says that the Lord God in verse 6 of chapter 2, it says, you are to pay them in silver for the food you eat, and the water you drink. And that reminds you of the point that I just made, that as they go around the land of Edom and the land of Moab, they're to pay all their bills. They're not to provoke these people. Now, I want you to look at verse 7. 
The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over you on your journey through this vast desert. You can feel the trauma, the difficulty of trying to preserve a people in this waterless, desolate land. And yet the Lord has done it. It says in verse 7, The Lord God has watched over your journey through the vast desert. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. And you have not lacked anything. That's an incredible verse. What it's telling us is that though the generation that came to Canaan Barnea failed the Lord, it says that the Lord did not fail them. Physically, they failed to believe in the Lord. They failed to believe His promise. And because of unbelief, they missed their opportunity to go into the physical promised land. And yet it's telling us that the Lord, all through that 38 years of wandering, the Lord blessed them. The Lord took care of them. The Lord provided for their needs. That's a very important reality. And it shows us that the Lord, even when we blow it in our life, even when we fail, like in this case, the children of Israel failed drastically. They failed horribly. And yet the Lord was faithful to them. But I also want you to see that though He, he really dealt with them physically, He provided for their needs spiritually, at the end of the passage of this section, it tells us something very important. Look at verse 15. The Lord's hand was against them. That's against this generation, the fighting men, those that were 20 years and older when they came to Kadesh Barnea 38 years before. It says the Lord's hand was against them until he had completely eliminated them from the camp. Now when the last of these fighting men among the people had died, the Lord said to me today, and now it's time for the people of Israel to move into victory. The very first lesson I want you to get from this passage, which is the writer of Deuteronomy wants to drive it home to us, is that unbelief, unbelief can cost us everything. And it needs to be cut out like cancer. You see, the children of Israel, this generation of fighting men, they were 20 years of age. They were in the prime of health, in the prime of their physical maturity. They came to Kadesh Barnea. They sent the spies up to the north. And the spies came back with a great report for the land. It's a good land. But the people said no, because there were giants in the land. The spies also said there's really big giants. Now later on in, Deut in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 3, some of the weird names like the Rephaim and the Emim, these names that don't mean anything to us, to the children of Israel was like saying the boogeyman and the big giant that was in the land. That's what those names meant. In fact, Rephaim even has the idea of ghosts later on in the Old Testament. And what the book of Deuteronomy is telling us is that 38 years before, there was a generation that said, no, we're afraid of the ghosts, of the giants, of the big men like Og who have gigantic beds. And the Lord says, okay, you're not going to believe me. You're not going to respond to me. You're not going to trust that I'll give you victory. Then I'll let you wander for 38 years. And what it's telling us is that the Lord's hand was against those fighting men. And finally, he took their life. Now, what it shows us is that the wages of sin is death. And every one of us have to decide. God gives his promises. I talked to you earlier. One of his promises, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If you believe that, then you're a man or a woman of faith. And you will grow. You will mature. Life will not be easy, but you will be maturing in godliness. If you say no, 
then you're living in death. And God is a God of justice. We don't like to believe that today. But Deuteronomy 2 and 3 is about principles of justice. And it's saying the Lord's hand will be against you. If you reject His gift, if you reject His promise, then you're walking into a kingdom of death. If you're a child of God that's come to faith, you've come to, you know, to believe in Him and He's come into your life, and you come to some strategic places in your life, like we've been talking in some of the earlier passages, you come to those strategic places and you say no. You come to a strategic decision in your life. Maybe it's who you're going to marry. And you know, I should not marry an unbeliever. I've been taught in the Word of God that I need to marry in the Lord. And you say, no, I'm going to marry who I want to marry. I'm going to marry the person that I want to marry. I want you to know, if you disobey, you'll probably wander. You'll probably waste a lot of time. You'll have a lot of hurt. It doesn't mean that the Lord won't bless you. It doesn't mean that He won't provide for you. I also want you to know that in eternity, it's very possible that the Lord will draw you very near to Himself. I'm not saying you won't be a child of God. But Deuteronomy gives us a great balance, and it's a balance that our culture needs to hear because we don't believe it. We think you make choices, and there's no consequences. Choices in life that choose to reject the promises of God can cost you everything. Very important to understand that. I want you to learn. That's why Paul says we need to know these passages. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the generation. The fighting generation. Why? Because when they were 20, they said, no, we don't believe. I want to challenge every one of you. What do you believe? Who are you depending upon? I began a little bit today giving you one of my expressions of faith. I believe, and I want you to know it's a really radical choice. I believe that when 1 Corinthians 10 says this passage can give us life, it can teach us about God, that if I struggle, because I haven't really taught this passage publicly before, if I struggle and wrestle with this passage and try to get it across to the audience, the Lord promises my word will not return to us void. It'll take away the emptiness in our life and give us wholeness. And I believe that. And I want you to know that I'll do that if there's one, if there's two, if there's 5,000, if there's 100,000, because that's what I'm really committed to. Now, that's a commitment. It's a commitment of faith. God says this word is his word. So I read Deuteronomy 2 and 3, and I'm talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, this passage to me doesn't make any sense at all. I don't see what the lessons are. It doesn't really seem to do anything for me. The Lord says, my son, listen longer. Pray longer. Struggle with me. Be patient. And as I do that, he begins to turn on some lights in my mind. He begins to teach me some things about His justice and about His faithfulness and about His love. And I want, I'm really trying to share with you honestly, that doesn't come easy for me and it won't come easy for you. And that's the truth. Sesame Street can make a lot of things fun and easy. But as you grow in life, there's going to come some times when you're just going to have to listen harder. And open your heart wider and make your mind pay attention. 
And oh, I want you to understand that because we are losing that. We're losing that among an entire generation of people that can struggle with material. And so part of my faith is to believe, you know, contrary to what, what is really the case in the modern world, where you're said, you know, you're into sound bites and into visual bites. In fact, if we really wanted to do this, we should just put up radical, just a whole series of different videos and, and just let your mind look at the videos. You'll never understand Deuteronomy doing that. It's hard. It's Moses telling them the account of their history, a history that we need to know about. There was a generation that didn't believe. Oh, I pray you're not going to be that generation. I think a lot of you are tired of having your leaders dodge the hard issues. I think you're hungry for some meat you can get your teeth into and chew on. Hope this is true because our present series on Truth Encounter has bitten off a heavy responsibility to try and communicate the basics of Deuteronomy. Hardly soundbite and photo clip material. The founder of Israel expected his people to learn from their history and to refrain from making the same mistakes that their parents made. As our study leader Dave Wurtson continues our study of Moses' review of Israel's history in chapters 2 and 3, he challenges us to grow up and stretch our own understanding, to make our minds pay attention. Let's see if we're up to it. <laughs> 